Hi, I'm Katerina and this is Sound Effects, a music and mental health podcast. people have known your journey because I think people who listen to this podcast they tend to fall into two strands so you've got the fans of the music and then you've got academics and experts who are working in this field so on both levels I think people who are fans of yours are likely to know what you've been doing but just for anyone who doesn't my understanding is that although you're still working with Boo Radley's there was a period of time of around 2007 you retrained in you did a doctorate in psychology was it clinical psychology you did the doctorate? no it was it was well it was a particular one particular one at Surrey University so it was called psychotherapeutic and counseling psychology so it's essentially a counseling psychology doctorate but they had a particular spin on it that they uh they wanted to it was very sort of uh psychodynamic influenced I guess so they wanted to add that psycho psychotherapeutic twist to it rather than just counseling psychology which I think they felt was a bit CBT based at the time so yeah that's that's what it is essentially yeah and it's it's an interesting point for me because although there's been a few musicians of late that have kind of done something similar where they've been been musicians and then they've decided to retrain your route is slightly different in the sense that i from what I've seen anyway, most most of the people, I'm thinking even people I've had on the podcast, there's people like Adam Fajczyk and um, mm. the, the drummer from the music, it was uh, Phil Jordan. I know there's a lot of oh, people yeah. that have, have done that kind of thing, but it seems that mostly people have gone through a counselling course or a psychotherapy training that you've gone through, uh, you went straight into a kind of doctorate, it seems, or you went into the psychology routes. Yeah, yeah. Um, were, were you consciously wanting to take that route as opposed to psychotherapy training? Yeah, I mean, the reason why that came about really was because of the situation I was in in 2007 when I decided to retrain in the um, when the Boo Radley split up in 1999, I became a stay at home dad. Um, So I was at home with my two young kids for about six or seven years. And so I didn't actually go straight into the doctorate in 2007. What I did in 2007 was start a psychology degree um, because I didn't do my first, uh, I didn't do my first degree back in the day because I was doing the music. Um, And I'd always been fascinated. You know, I had a place at Liverpool University back in the day to do psychology. So it was kind of going back and doing that. So first of all, um, I just wanted to do the psychology degree. Um, I very quickly got interested in the um in in the psychotherapeutic aspects of psychology um in my at the end of my first year I remember going down to City University and doing an introduction to counseling psychology course um that was during the summer and that was what really got me interested in that direction but 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 really um it was the academic psychology that I was involved in for the next two years um so in 2010, I then applied for the doctorate, which was far more about um, actual 
psychotherapeutic training but the psychology aspect did always interest me that was the thing uh, I, I think people train as um, counselors because it's just about the therapeutic aspect but actually the psychology aspect lots of it really I find hugely fascinating you know the kind of a bit about cognitive psychology language acquisition the the, the even more sort of uh, biopsychology and perception all that. I mean because it's a very very wide-ranging field so I'm glad I did it really because it's kind of there's an awful lot there and I find most of it fascinating to be honest um, I think it was really helpful in terms of developing a uh, an ability to read scientific literature and to critically um, pull apart scientific literature. And I think that's helped uh, me develop my own particular therapeutic worldview um, about, you know, what the evidence base is and what the evidence base means, rather than kind of slavishly following these things, being able to kind of critically appreciate those things. Um, so yeah, so psychology, so so uh, counselling psychology uh, really suited me. Um, I couldn't do clinical psychology because clinical psychology, well, a couple of reasons really. One one was that the the route into that is actually quite long and quite difficult, and I couldn't do that. One, um, I had constraints because I was still a dad. I still had these constraints, and the other um, was just that it was just. I think it would be too long and too difficult. And I felt at the age of, God, I was nearly 40 when I started my doctorate. In fact, I was 40. You know, it felt like our time was against me and I needed to get on as quickly as possible. Um, so that's really why, uh, yeah, in 2010, I started the doctoral training, um, which was at Surrey University. Um, and sadly, that course no longer exists. I mean, that 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 that, that course has gone now, um, which is a real shame because it was absolutely fabulous. It was a fantastic course. Um, and so, yeah, then I, I started my training two days a week in the NHS. I did all my placements in the NHS. Um, and then, um, yeah, the, the doctoral research and the and the training which was you know the best bit of the training um is the friends that we made you know which are friends for life and and they're incredible people that are trained with so incredible bunch of people yeah absolutely that and the journey you will go on together because it's not easy is it it's really oh, tough. yeah i mean i think that 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 conversation was always the way and the fact that you've got people alongside you going through it was really important because you do get warnings at the start you know people will say this is going to be tough this is going to be very difficult and I think in the back of the mind you're all thinking yeah yeah I'll be fine and it's only when you, you like, oh my god this is tough this is really tough um, and and to have people around you who are kind of going through the same experiences and to help support when we're struggling was really important really important yeah did you find that the experiences you had in the music industry kind of prepared you for that as well I'm just thinking about that sense of endurance and mm. maintaining that longevity of uh, keeping going and not giving up I, I wondered whether you had skills that you kind of drew on from your time kind of on the road I think, I mean, yeah, I've never thought about it before, but you're absolutely spot on. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always said about, you know, success in the music business takes perseverance. You know, there's an awful lot of talented people out there who didn't make it, you know, who were 
ultimately a lot more talented than people who do make it. But the two things that are different, I think, is luck and perseverance, you know, of actually just keeping going and the determination to keep going. So I think that was a transferable skill. Yeah, the determination was a was a big one. Um, the I mean, the other thing was actually the, the, the stay at home dad thing actually taught me a lot in terms of kind of patience and tolerance of difficult emotions and, and those kind of things that, that that was actually really helpful and transferable. Um, the other side of the music thing was helpful in terms of kind of, I guess, any groups we were involved with um, in the training. I was very familiar with group dynamics. I was very familiar with, um, you know, cliques being formed, scapegoating, whipping boys, all the kind of normal group dynamics that developed. You know, we'd seen it, you see it every tour, you know, every time there's a touring party of a dozen people, those those group dynamics always uh, push themselves to the fore. So so there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of transferability to to the training, yeah. But, but also, um, also, a very different world as well you know it was a very um yeah some aspects were a big shift you know a big shift to sort of take on yeah working it working in the real world was a big big difference yeah there's so much to draw on on what you're saying it's so rich and layered and I will come back to some things like a when you're talking about group dynamics I'll come back mm. to that because I know that's an area obviously Tamsin has looked at in her book as mm. well I wanted to pick out there, you mentioned you were a stay-at-home dad. Mm. And I think that's an interesting exploration as well, because mm. I guess if you're connecting it to not so much nowadays, but certainly 90s, early 2000s image of rock stardom and what was considered acceptable and unacceptable or cool and uncool in terms of mm. what male rock stars were expected to do. I don't imagine, please tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't imagine that there was a lot of support in place for, for someone wanting to be a, a stay-at-home dad mm. as a musician. No, ex exactly. And I think there is a huge amount to pull apart in that because, you know, my experience um, of the, 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 I guess, the pop stardom or the, 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 the kind of zeitgeist of what we went through was, you know, when I was first starting um, the bands that we really liked, you know, early 90s, um, really had a kind of sensitivity to them. You know, Nirvana and Kurt Cobain um, would often talk about feminism. He was very feminist in his outlook and um, very um, anti-misogynist and, and very supportive of, of, of kind of, of women's art and women's music. And then, which I felt very comfortable with, I always felt very comfortable. I've always felt that, um, you know, I, I have a feminist outlook and, and then it suddenly changed in the mid nineties, you know, and that was really uncomfortable and, um, and very confusing, um, very confusing to sort of see this, uh, emergent lad culture come out and a huge lad culture, um, a very kind of misogynist, um, viewpoint come out, you know, um, loaded magazine, FHM magazine, all these kind of things, um, essentially kind of soft pornography and what was kind of allowable, you know, this casual misogyny, um, and, 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 and I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think partly that probably played quite a big part in some sense of disillusionment with what was happening in music or certainly kind of what was, you know, termed the Britpop movement. Um, 
we felt we really didn't fit with that. But that was, but that experience, I think, was really emblematic of um, of what has come to be termed the crisis in masculinity, in that it was very confusing to know what's going on here. You know, how are we? How are we supposed to be? Um, you know, what, what's the sort of right kind of masculinity? We're supposed, you know, this one is the one that's being lauded, but this is a kind of masculinity masculinity that I don't recognise, that I don't hold with. Um, and it was very difficult to be a stay-at-home dad. I was really, really shocked because I think I'd always been fairly progressive and, and I, I don't think I understood uh the the issues that would occur you know being a stay-at-home dad it's very isolating and and i had a lot of empathy for why it was isolating because there's there's a mistrust there's a natural mistrust of men in that environment um you know a lot of people, a lot of um, other mums who, who my wife was sort of involved with were actually quite welcoming and, and I would go along. But later on, when we got to the school and it was people who didn't really know you, it's a very difficult thing for a man that's never met to go up to somebody's parent and say, hey, my daughter would like a play date with your daughter. Would she come over? And to sort of then deal with the shame that comes out of that, the sort of, you know, the the, the feelings, the almost accusatory feelings. And, and I was very sensitive to it. You know, I would say, understand this is a very, very strange situation and you're welcome to come over and stay there and, you know, get to know me, the, those kind of things. But um but there were an awful lot of challenges with it, um, you know, and, and I think one of the things as well is that, you know, what I learned, uh, it was hugely instructive for me because I think that generally the, the what we would kind of call the male training, the, the sort of male gender role training doesn't prepare you for being with children. It doesn't prepare you for being um, tolerant of emotions. It doesn't prepare you to have empathy, to have understanding. Uh, it's it's a really, really difficult thing. And so you have to learn those things. Um, it's a very, you know, men tend to be the, the sort of, I guess, male training tends to be more solution focused. And of course, that's not, that's not going to work with a baby. It's not going to work with a toddler, you know, so, um, you know, you have to develop new skills. So, yeah, it was, um, I don't think, I, no, I certainly wasn't prepared for it. And it was an enormous shock. Um, and it was a real struggle um at first it got easier and I got better at it and I was and I'm so so pleased that I did it because I think those years are extraordinarily important for bonding in a way that I think if that's missed it's very difficult to grab back I mean not saying it's impossible but it is difficult to grab back you know that's the foundation of the relationship I think and the the very unconscious trust and attachment that develops um is is very very solid in that in that uh, when you spend those early years together those really early years yeah mm. it's making me think as I've understood it you there was some overlap there between that happening and creation records ending and then the boo Bradley mm. stopping and then you being able to spend more time at home mm. but I wondered in that as well how how it was seen within the community of musicians that you were with you spoken about how it was like at the school gates did you find you were well supported by by the industry itself to to be um, 
I don't think there was much overlap. I think I think what had happened was is that there was a little bit, but actually I'd basically made the decision by the year 2000 to step away from the music business. Um, and and really, so it didn't really come up in terms of that. Um, no, I don't, I don't think there was a, a lot of support, actually. I mean, what I did step away from the music business, but what I found was is that actually the music business is one of those places because i tried to stay in touch with a lot of friends and a lot of contacts but it's one of those things that i felt that there is there's almost or there was a wall at the age of 30 where you either uh bust through the wall and go on to do something different with your life you say okay enough i'm going to burst out and do something different or you turn back at that wall and go back into the business and you stay there for the rest of your life and you try to you eke out some kind of existence you know whether that's going into management or some other part of it um and and so what i found was that once i'd gone to the other side of the wall those people who'd stopped at the wall and turned back really didn't have a lot of interest in what you know in the in the lifestyle you know people would come out and visit and they would stay but you know i'm saying right the, the baby's going to be up at five so i'm going to bed because it's 10 o'clock and of course they're there going 10 o'clock thought we were going to stay up till four like we normally do so that was a big change i, I think at the, i mean now maybe it would be different maybe now there's more compatibility um then i think the two things were not compatible at all and and basically um yeah i mean basically i had to sort of pretty much um step away from the music business until i sort of stepped back into it in 2019 you know i spent basically yeah nine, about nine, 18 19 years away from it um not really being um obviously peripherally involved because i still knew people who were there are still new people who were working in music management and those kind of things but actually me being involved i, I really wasn't at all yeah that makes a lot of sense but yeah it wasn't as overlappy as I had maybe imagined it was it was a bit yeah. more delineated yeah yeah I and um, I am I right in saying you did your your doctor was on that topic of male gender norms mm. and I really I really would like to get into that a little mm. bit with you if if you're okay with it because yeah um, yeah yeah, and because you talked already about, you know, how, you know, the training, the, the male gender training isn't sort of conducive to looking after little children and dealing with the flux of the of the different emotions. It's kind of more solution focused and stuff like that. And I wanted to explore that with you around how that connects to identity in a way with, uh, for musicians, because um, what I have I think what I connected to or picked up through these interviews and also through my experience of having an older brother and um, him having been in bands is that being a musician seemed to feed into something around the male identity um, in terms of what that lifestyle provided, like some kind of escape um, mm -hmm. or some something else that life could offer. And it seemed to tack tap into something in the in the male psyche and I know I may be being very generalist here but I think you know you would having done a doctorate in it you would be able to really chew that over so I'd really like to ask you about that 
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, and I think we are, you know, when we when we talk about this, we're going to have to forgive ourselves for any kind of generalism that goes on because I think it's inevitable. But um, you know, I think um, I think one of the things, I mean, I think maybe what you're tapping into there with 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 what male musicians seem to get, I think, is a sense of play. You know, I think play is extraordinarily important. Um, I mean, for everybody, but I think for men in particular, um, you know, I, I think it's it's the arena where they're allowed to sort of, it's okay to play, you know, it's okay to kind of, to mess around, to kind of be creative um, and to and to be emotional as well, you know, and maybe it is, you know, maybe the, the sort of, I guess, the, 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 the male dominance, I guess, in the in the pop world um, and the, the music world is about that ability to express emotions um, that is actually very, very difficult for men ordinarily. Um, I think one of the things is that it, it allows people to do that exploration, which isn't really done um you know outside of that arena and so you know i'm not sure these things are intentional but i think it's maybe what men find you know and i think maybe um you know men who are sort of when we're brought up you know the the the, the i think in the past and again things are getting better now but in the past there wasn't that focus on emotions there wasn't that discussion around it and so i think what what men might feel when they listen to music is that palpable sense of emotion and it's something that's okay to feel you know it's okay to listen to a sad song and to feel that welling up and to feel that upset and it's it's okay to to feel those different feelings you know and and i think sort of you know even in genres like heavy metal and things you know there's an exuberance there's a you can kind of almost get that anger out so a lot of it has this different um expression of emotions and maybe that's what draws men into it i think um that so there's two aspects there i think that that um and and the other thing is that you know tying it in you know a lot of my um research doctoral research was on the concept of the male gender role norm so so talking about the traditional male gender role norms which again you know these are it's its grip is slightly loosening but it's in certain aspects it's coming back full force in a way that i never expected you know with the rise of what's now called toxic masculinity um you know uh, influencers who espouse forms of hyper masculinity which uh, to my research you know are, are extremely harmful for everybody around the men themselves and the people around them um so maybe what what was there for music was an escape of that you know you could escape if you didn't fit into those uh into those ideals of of mask of traditional masculinity you could find a place in music and a lot of people did you know people um like david bowie mark boland lou reed you know those people who normally would be seen as the lowest of the low in traditional masculine uh, masculinity hegemonies um they could find a place where they could be themselves and they could for, have different forms of masculinity. Um, so I think, you know, that's, it's always drawn that kind of person. Um, but, you know, uh, that was really the focus 
of my research was this idea of the traditional male gender role norm and how how we relate to that you know how how it's still in existence the damage that's done by it um and how people sort of um how people sort of live with it you know how they relate to it do they reject it do they tend to aspire to it do they try and transform it do they try and um kind of make it into something new uh, so that was the level so i think musicians kind of do that they step outside of those traditional masculinity norms when i was a teenager um i mentioned having an older brother and so i was very used to his friends being around a lot and they were a few years older than me so when i was maybe like 15 16 they were like 18 19 so they were at that age where I really remember it very strongly. They were at this kind of like threshold age where some of them were deciding what they're going to do with their lives. Are they going to study and go to university and take that standard route? Or are they going to quit and, you know, work? And, and where would they work? Would it be like in a shop or something like that? And then there was this heavy um, influence of music and a lot of them did want to kind of travel and, and go abroad and and be musicians and they had this I, I remember it very vividly they had this dream of like not wanting to settle they didn't mm. want to kind of get stuck in something and it, I always had this sense that they wanted to run away and and I wondered about their feeling of what that running away meant from this idea of who they had to be and mm. it was almost as if um they had an image of like getting um feeling bogged down by you know the idea that they would need to get married and they'd need to have kids and they'd have to have a standard nine-to-five job and they'd have to be the breadwinner and they'd have to um I, I, it was like it almost as if it was tyrannical to them um, mm -hmm. and that's that's what I remember really strongly connecting to then and I almost saw their interest in wanting to be in bands specifically not just musicians but being in a band mm. almost offering a different option or a different way of life that they could um put off all those responsibilities and mm. I guess that's maybe what you're naming like there's something around that the tyranny of the suit almost mm -hmm. I, I totally agree and and that was that was my experience and um, and my other band members experience from a very early age. You know, I think I mean, I remember that, you know, being from the age of, about, I don't know, 10, you know, as soon as I saw Top of the Pops, as you know, that was the thing where I would see bands. And that that was exactly it. It was an escape. And that tyranny of the suit is exactly as you described. You know, I would view that and I would see things like that and uh, uh, representations of it in the media. And it was depressing. You know, it was it really actually felt quite oppressive. Um, you know, the, of kind of this is this all there is. And so I agree. You know, I think for a lot of people um, that almost it's almost a fantasy you know the pop star is almost a, a, a the idea of being a musician of 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 not having to live the normal life 
is an escape um you know and 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 i think that's i think that's still there in a lot of respects maybe not with music quite as much but i think it's certainly there you know for children with sports with being an influencer you know i think that's always there that idea of the the kind of you know the oppressive lifestyle that you're forced to lead um i think there are always these fantasies that people want to pursue so i think you're absolutely right you know i think um I guess the question is, you know, are you lucky enough to avoid that? Um, it's a difficult thing. I mean, for, for one of the things that I always, um, because I'm not sure that trying to live that fantasy life is a good thing. Um, mm. For me, as with most things, there's always a balance to be found, you know, and, and actually, whereas um, I wouldn't want to submit to the kind of tyranny of the suit, I think trying to find a middle ground where you can be a musician, where you can live partly this lifestyle, but that you also connect to the real world um, is, is, is absolutely vital. I mean, for me, in terms of kind of uh, the growth for me as a person and my relationship to other people and my understanding, my my connection as a as a working therapist, as a working psychologist, has been vital and absolutely vital. And I, I, I really glad it's happened, even though I think back in the day, I might have looked at this and thought, oh my God, that's tyranny of the suit. You know, you've got to do that work. But actually there's something about it that's very, very important as well. So it's about, I think there's a problem if you, if you avoid life by fleeing, you know, you, you get into that avoidance kind of, um, it, it becomes a kind of an avoidance tactic and, and you, you know, you stay disconnected from life by any means. I'm not sure that's healthy. Do you think that, was that what it was for you, an avoidance um, yeah. Of time? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I remember, you know, part of the reason, I mean, I went through a period um of i mean part of the reason I, I got into things therapeutically was because i ended up in therapy because once the kids were um old enough to go to school 2006 2007 i was struggling you know i really didn't know what to do with my life um i did actually i'd forgotten about this i did actually in 2005 sort of put my dip my toe back in the music industry i made as um a record with a new band um and it was just so strange because I, it just wasn't me, but it, but it came completely out of fear. You know, I did not know where I belonged, what I could do. And, and it was almost like I, I sort of turned back and went back through the wall a little bit and kind of went, I've got to go back to safety. You know, I ran back to safety, but it just wasn't right. You know, time had moved on. I wasn't 20 years of age anymore. No one was really interested. It was just, um, it was just, purely out of fear and avoidance um and so that's it really took a lot and it took therapy really to, to to help me through and to give me the kind of confidence i think to go back and start studying again so for you it was the fact that it was therapy that was that kind of realization point that you could make it balanced or or have a kind of integration of mm. of both the freedom and the responsibility i guess yeah i mean it was it was it was a it was a combination. It was a combination of, you know, uh, I guess, discussions with my wife who, you know, could obviously see what I was going through, obviously see the fact that I was actually just stuck and not doing very much. Um, 
I mean, you say that. Um, one of the things that I actually did over that period, about the two years, 2004, 2005, was I wrote a novel. And but again, you know, I look back and that was that was an attempt to 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 avoid again to avoid the real world it was kind of okay well i'll become a writer um you know and i'll i'll write a novel and so it was it was anything about you know trying to avoid engaging with the real world so it caused you know it caused problems in in my relationship um you know it caused problems with me um i guess my own sense of identity was what was really lacking that was i had absolutely no identity um my identity for the years previously had been stay at home dad i was able to find some pride in that um and but then it came to the period where the children had gone to school they were more independent and i was just left with nothing so therapy helped me realize that that was what i was lacking you know i was lacking identity a sense of purpose um and and gradually i was able to kind of overcome i guess the anxiety um about that and 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 go back and you know go back into education which was which was wonderful i loved it yeah. Do you tend to see a lot of um, men that come for therapy with these sorts of questions and and I guess that that same sense of lack of identity? Do you work with men? Strangely, strangely, no. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, yes, I think the, 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 there are younger men who I tend to see. I think that, that, that when the lack of identity things... Usually comes up with people who've yet to find an identity. So, you know, I really, really feel for it's young men who've basically followed the path that's been set out for them, you know, GCSEs, A levels, degree, that's the path laid out. And then the next step is what they really struggle with. You know, it's like, what am I supposed to do next? I haven't found that thing that gives me my identity that I'm interested in. You know, those are the people that I really do feel for because that's a very difficult situation to be in. Um, it's great if you can find an identity and you say that's what it is, but when you're bereft of that, and there's also a, a, a sense of shame and a sense of guilt there because um, I think people think that they should have found that now. There's almost a mantra that people say, find the thing that interests you and do that. And that's fine. But there's an awful lot of people out there, an awful lot of men, certainly. And 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 I don't think this is particularly male specific, um, but but um, who who will have that thing of saying, I, I haven't found that thing. I can't find that thing. And they find a great deal of pressure and a sense of shame and a sense of guilt that they're not finding that thing and they're not pursuing that thing. And I think that's that's really, really hard. So I do see that in kind of the younger men. Um the older men, um, it's more likely to be uh, something akin to midlife crisis, I think. That mm -hmm. kind of, you know, when you talk about your um, your older brother's friends, you know, there, there are those ones who would say, um, <clears throat> I, I want to do something different and so run away from that. But I think there are also those who kind of toe the line and say, no, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And so I think what then happens is there's a lot of unspoken disillusionment by the time people get to 40, 45. And the idea is, look, I've done what I'm supposed to do. I found a career. I worked hard. I had the children. I had the marriage. Why aren't I happy? 
You know, why do I reach the and why am I struggling? Why can't I sleep? Why am I miserable? Why don't I enjoy things? Why am I drinking too much? You know, and, and I think that's part of the thing there, I think, is about the, um, I guess, a lot of it is about learning to um, ameliorate stress because there's an awful lot of stress there. But a lot of it is about the, uh, the, the emotional understanding of what they're actually going through you know about not really recognizing their own dissatisfaction their own unhappiness um how to put their needs first um that tends to be the case there because they because the belief is you know in the traditional realm uh, norm the, the the lie that we're sold is this will bring happiness you know and this is the dangerous thing that because this lie has been repackaged and resold by you know by people on the internet now by by inf male influencers who are now repackaging this um and, and selling it again and it's just so damaging it's just so disillusioning and of course what a lot of these men find is that and this is part of the um the study around the gender role norms is that the actual processes of going through and trying to achieve these are damaging so a lot of men who who told their worth is based on how much you earn how hard you work you know they miss out on family time they don't bond with their children they they miss out on it and they miss out on a lot of friendships intimacy with their wife because they're work focused and and it's so awful for them because they're doing what they were told they needed to do. You know, this is the right thing. This is what society expects. And then, you know, when they get to 40 or 50, it's what's going on? You know, their wife's not happy. The children don't really speak to them. It's like, I don't understand this. And that's heartbreaking, you know, To uh, but that's a lot of the work there, I think, is helping them to understand that. And I guess this links in a lot of ways to your show because it was called, um, mm. oh, I wrote it down, is the happiness. Uh, Secret happiness. of happiness. Secret <laughs> of happiness, that's it, yeah. yeah. Was yeah. It, is this, these are the kinds of things you bring into or that you had brought into that show? Yeah, it is. Um, I, I like, I mean, essentially the 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 secret of happiness essentially it's a story i mean essentially a lot of it's about what we're talking about today is about you know my belief that the that um the top of the pops the pop stardom would bring happiness and actually you know this is one of the things and actually finding that mid 90s when i got all this stuff top of the pops and the stardom were playing glastonbury i still wasn't happy you know it was like it was quite a shock to suddenly go this isn't the promised land you know this is i actually still feel miserable what's going on you know i still there are days i, I can't sleep and there are days i don't want to get out of bed what's what is going on um so the actual secret happiness yes it then goes on to kind of um about what it talks about then is kind of therapeutic approaches to happiness, what therapeutic thinkers have, have kind of um, thought about that and then goes on to those things, you know, about the expectations on us about happiness, what society says that we have to do to find happiness, how um, and, and actually what the reality of our own functioning is, you know, what the reality of our own emotional worlds, the fact that we have cognitive biases, the fact that, you know, we have unconscious motives, all these kind of things actually really conspire to block any sense of happiness. And and so, um, yeah, I, I do cover quite a lot. It's, um, it's a two hour show, but I love it. I mean, that's what I actually, actually love. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, this was all last month you did it, didn't you? Um, yeah. And yeah. did you find, did you have quite a, a strong reaction to it? And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what 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 I did initially was I did a run of a small one back in March this year, twenty twenty three, and that was a kind of real mix of music stuff, and it was kind of anecdotes about being in the Boo Radleys and these kind of things, and and a bit of kind of psychology and mental health. Um, but what I actually found was that the bits that people really responded to and really reacted to, especially men was the mental health stuff was the psychology stuff um and and so this time i've made that more of the focus but it's still integrated with music you know that's the thing is that is that this is a real i think it's more of a 50 50 split between the music side of me and the psychology side of me um there is still i still play music i still sing songs through they're more kind of entwined with the themes um and so you know i was really surprised at how um how much men were kind of because what I did in the last one was I did a section on emotions I did a section about the evolutionarily adaptiveness of emotions and their purpose and these kind of things and and the the response just was I'm sure a lot of therapists hear this why hasn't anyone told me this before you know I didn't understand this about emotions and and you know it's it's a personal bugbear of mine that it's kind of like I really hope I mean I think pastoral pastoral care and this kind of thing is getting better in schools but it's kind of like why are we being taught about algebra when we're not being taught about our own emotions you know that would have been so useful for me and a lot of other people growing up um so i guess for a certain generation of people i'm trying to fill in that gap as well yeah well um have you had people say anything in response to those shows that um, have stayed with you? Obviously, some of it will be confidential, but what do you notice people, um, I guess, sharing with you as a result of seeing you do the shows? I think I think the thing that that there's a few things um, that I've taken from the comments. And one, the first one is, is is how relatable it is, because I'll give lots of examples about certain things that we do. And and what's interesting is people saying, oh, my God, that's me. You were talking about me in that section. And so what I think what's helpful is that kind of relatability of these kind of um, therapeutic ideas, um, what what it is that people do. So I think I think it. Part of what I want to do is destigmatize a lot of the thing and demystify therapy as well, because people, um, you know, for people who don't do it, it can be quite a scary, mysterious thing. Um, so, so demystifying that and helping people realize, oh, so that's what you do in therapy, and oh God, that is me, and and is that causing me? You know, is that a problem? You know, this idea that actually you don't have to be mentally unwell to go to therapy you know it's that thing about actually these days um prevention is better than cure you know that's one of the things and so it's almost kind of like you know the nhs has realized that actually curing costs a lot of money once the damage is being done and so it focuses on um obesity uh obesity drives and non-smoking drives and these things as prevention and and what i hope is that therapy becomes the same way that people come for you know just check am i okay am i doing all right how are the things i could be doing differently am i thinking about this in a most helpful way um so that's been really important the other thing is that's been that's been actually really interesting is almost hearing those um 
kind of things um the prejudice is being a little bit reinforced um, and 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 knowing what's still out there one of the things was um because because it's actually you know it's quite light-hearted it's funny in parts and so somebody who came said I absolutely loved it and she said and my sister struggles with her mental health and I actually said to her this is something that you should come along to and she didn't know what it was so she tried to explain that you know it was a bit funny music mental health and uh, and their sister said to her um well i don't think mental health's a laughing matter and i think that's the kind of thing that that i want to try and get over because <clears throat> yes of course when people are struggling with their mental health it's it's not something to be funny you know but actually the principles the psychological principles the the the, the ways we can keep ourselves uh, uh, our well-being um good and the ways that it goes down um we know them they're then they're standard kind of things and it, what we've got to do is kind of help people understand those things you know there's in a way that actually doesn't feel like a lecture doesn't feel like a self-help book you know it just has a bit more lightness to it um so those are the things really that i think i've, I've kind of taken um and i think more than anything um i think people share the fascination that I share with this stuff you know I think and 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 because because I'm fascinated by it I think I'll tend to pick out the more interesting bits you know it's it's probably you know it's probably a condensation of every kind of um psychology lecture I've ever sat through with the most interesting bits put in you know it's not endless kind of stats and things that that we have to suffer through but it's kind of yeah the interesting bits yeah it's kind of an education in a way that what's interesting about that is that there's the community aspect so you're bringing people together in community which in itself mm. has got so many healing and therapeutic benefits whilst also sort of there's a kind of psychoeducation with it um yeah it, it sounds like kind of um I don't know I wonder whether you're like setting the pathway for a new way of therapy because we we talk so much about um the way therapy is structured at the moment and things like funding in the NHS and people not having access mm. to it and waiting lists and and therapy being very expensive if they go privately um but what you're kind of describing is like almost um beyond the group therapy framework actually going out mm. into the community and giving yeah. people that experience in a in an accessible way and um, I've just got this image now of like the future of therapy we like a load of um, peripatetic um, therapists giving yeah, yeah. But that there's something that sounds lovely about that um, well I think so I mean I've I always enjoyed that educative aspect yeah. and you know and throughout you know, throughout my own, uh, I guess, my own issues with, with mental health, you know, I mean, one of the things was in the in the sort of third year of my training, I had a major mental breakdown and basically had to stop training and take six months out before I picked it up again. And and if for me, what was really, really important was was the understanding, you know, therapy helped support me through that I think but actually no one was able to really offer and this is part of the story of the secret of happiness um nobody was really able to offer me an understanding and I think 
you know, personally, I've found that that understanding more important than anything else, something that I'm able to carry with me, something that I'm able to create a, a narrative and a framework about kind of, OK, this is what's going on here. And I think that helps people enormously. And I, And to be honest, I think that's the majority. I think that's probably why I've decided to try and get this to a wider audience, because I think a lot of my. Uh, a majority of my therapeutic work what we are doing is creating a shared understanding you know a shared formulation and a lot of these formulations take roughly the same kind of uh the same kind of shape so you know what i'm kind of trying to do is to kind of get is to kind of the, the value the the value of psychoeducation out there and you know and the problem is is that if if it's going to be boring if it's going to be not entertaining people aren't going to pay attention so it is for me it is about kind of actually this needs to be interesting it needs to be a night out it needs to be something that gets discussed over a couple of beers and then it goes in you know i think if you're not the problem is at the moment is we have a very sort of black and white thing it's either you struggle with mental health therefore you're involved in services and this understanding or you're not and you tend to ignore it you tend to kind of and to me actually this is valuable information for everybody in the same way that you know we're now all more aware of what calorific values mean and what exercise is good for you and what cardiovascular exercise and what resistance exercises you know we've all we're all educated about this stuff so you know for me it's about kind of actually getting a good kind of education out there about what's helpful what isn't helpful why this might be happening how to frame an understanding so is your is your plan to do more of these your your end yeah 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 um i've actually got one um tomorrow night which has been it was the london one was postponed because there was a train strike so um so there's one tomorrow night um, in london um and uh there's and so next year yes i'm definitely going to do more um that's that's really my plan for next year is to see what kind of forums i can get this to um you know at the moment it's been kind of i i love little theaters i absolutely adore little theaters and i've been trying to sort of do fabulous little you know 50 60 theater theaters or theaters around the country but next year i kind of want to see whether you know i could take it to kind of festivals whether actually companies might want to you know actually you know i i'm with you in that for me um, you know, a lot of people will write a self-help book or do these things. But for me, it's actually the live engagement that's more helpful than anything. I think you take more than that. There is a community sense. It's a celebratory of everyone's laughing together. Everyone's engaged. That's far, far more helpful than, you know, than a, than a self-help book, really. So. So, yeah. So that's where I kind of feel like I want to put my energies. And I, and I, I love it as well. You know, this stuff is absolutely fascinating to me so I love communicating it you know it's, mm -hmm. it's wonderful well the one tomorrow night I'm just wondering if, I, if if it's near me I can try and come to it I don't know if it's already full up I can I can get you on the guest list no problem um yeah, yeah absolutely I'll put you on the guest list there's, there's oh, just um, no yeah. worries at all yeah no absolutely <laughs> yeah no it'd be great yeah that'll be absolutely great so yeah, that that so that kind of thing, you know, I think is uh, I love doing it. It's the opportunity for me to play music as well. You know, it's I do play songs in there as well, so it's an opportunity for me to perform. So, um, yeah, I love it. Yeah, so it's a real um, yeah, it's it's a kind of night of entertainment. It sounds like it combines music, comedy, mental health. Uh, 
and a night out yeah it's really good and I also noticed feeling um I, it was quite sad in a way when you talked about that moment when you were on top of the pops or, or like you said that you thought that that would be your moment of achieving something arriving and feeling happy and it wasn't quite what you thought it just kind of put me in touch with like the idea of you know me watching top of the pops at that time and seeing bands that i i liked and all the all the pop stars and rock stars kind of being elevated in this way where they're kind of idolized you know you were all, you were all you know you were all rock stars to my to my teenage mind and it's interesting now thinking back thinking actually what was going on for you and presumably for a lot of others at that time um in isolated bubbles not quite feeling right but at the same time potentially no one really saying it at the time absolutely i mean it's it's yeah, absolutely spot on i mean what's what's fascinating for me is that that that's absolutely my experience as well you know is that yes when at the time bands were very protective you know that that when you were operated we we mixed with each other but we didn't really talk and it was almost the kind of that that envy thing that you were constantly kind of looking at each other saying are they doing better are they doing better so nobody really um nobody really talked um what's happened now is quite incredible <laughs> that that um you know because i've got back involved with the music business i will meet these people you know i'll meet mickey from lush and and louise wiener and people and 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 talk to them and everyone's experience is the same you know everyone's experience is like you know i hated that and and i was struggling so much then and you know and we we're all being the same i mean the the problem was is that you know obviously people were struggling quite badly then you know there were suicides of people that we knew and but there was no you i mean this was the real shock and this is the thing about the the male thing as well um why i think the male suicide rate is so high is that you know it's just not there just isn't a, an awareness of that emotional experience at all and when the emotional experience becomes so overwhelming it just feels so alien and so wrong and so difficult and so overpowering that people just feel there's I cannot live like this mm-hmm. and 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 don't see recovery as an option don't see these feelings as a transient thing it's just oh my god this has happened to me and I cannot live like this and so yeah I think you know you're absolutely right I think everybody you know throughout the throughout the 90s um really kind of struggled and this is one of the things that um that we're trying to do with MITC, with the Music Industry Therapist Collective, um, both in our work with musicians and people who work in the music industry, but also in the educative aspect, the workshops that we do. Um, and one of the things that we're sort of realising is that we're trying to do is to try and change that culture, you know, to try and change the culture of not only of not speaking, but just the culture of kind of 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 work or you know because actually touring especially being a musician it's incredibly difficult work you know it from the outside it looks wonderful and and parts of it are 
you know, parts of it are, but there are also parts that are incredibly difficult and are quite unlike any other industry um, that, that people work in. And so, and, and there's a huge amount of self-drive. People don't look after themselves because you get into that message quite, you know, it's also the flip side of what we were saying earlier about dedication is not knowing when to stop. Yeah. is not knowing when to take care of yourself and pushing and pushing and pushing. And and actually, that was what I realized when I had my breakdown in, in the third year of my training. That was what was going on. You know, my dedication and my push was overwhelming. All the signals that were saying to me, stop, you are burned out, you are done. You know, and actually, I just kept going and going and going. And I think that's one of the things that happens in the music industry. Um, I think... I don't think it's deliberate, um, but I think, you know, management, record companies, people involved will take advantages of of musicians um, desire to push and push and push. Um, and, and somebody has to take responsibility to say, no, you can't tour like that. You cannot do two months on touring without any proper time off. It's just it's not feasible. Um, instead, people kind of think, wow, two months of touring. Look at all the money coming in. Um, so so MITC really wants to try and change that culture and um, and think about instead um, think about longevity, sustainability for artists, those kind of things. So MITC, their Music Industry Therapist Collective. Um, yeah. I, um, I did do, I did an interview with Tamsin a few months back, but I'm going to redo it with her because there was a section on it we were going to do on attachment. Um, so that will probably come out probably after yours now, but okay. so, um, I'll, I'll try and figure right. that out in a way. But yeah, just to say that... Um, for anyone listening these two things are connected so what you're talking about here Tamsin Embleton she's the founder of MITC um and she's essentially it's like a collective isn't it a collective of individuals who are uh, fully trained psychotherapists and counsellors who also have a lot of experience in the music industry whether that be like yourself you were a musician and singer-songwriter or um also, as I understand it, people that worked in crew or people who worked in record company, but they've also got this extra layer of mental health training. And um, there's a collective of you that are on hand in a way actively um, speaking to music industry professionals, providing support through therapy and workshops and um events and also the book um i've got it right here actually uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> the touring yeah her work the touring and mental health music industry manual um which is kind of like a a go-to book isn't it for for any any musician on tour for how to a, I guess how to understand what's going on and and understand what's happening for you but also like really active tools for where you can get help from anything from therapy to how to look after your health and eating and and everything she's I, done amazingly amazing. she's done amazingly yeah and it, and so just to link you into that you're you're part of that collective mm. and um that's what you meant just there when you were talking about events and and putting on yeah shops yeah and is there, is there anything you're um actively working on currently in relation to MITC that you're you're doing or about to do 
Um, the, there is something in the new year. I mean, what, what we tend to do, um, we, we, we get employed by certain organisations within the music industry, so publishers, insurers, record company groups, those kind of things, to, um, to give talks about areas that they think may be important, um, such as uh, anxiety, such as um, touring breakdowns, those kind of things so um so there's one on anxiety we've got coming up but they generally we're doing we're doing them um, because there's 20 30 people in mitc now so there's kind of a a rotation of people doing these um doing these uh but but i think a lot more will happen next year as well um i didn't go to it but mitc are also trialing uh kind of well-being festivals like almost a well-being hub where people can drop in and talk to a therapist if they're struggling um those kind of things um we also you know i'm also working with musicians and uh touring personnel who've come through MITC, you know, MITC act as a kind of referral point for mm. therapy. Um, I mean, and the idea being really um, just that idea that, you know, touring particularly or being a musician or being a, a working music personnel has particular strains to it that actually it's almost a kind of somebody who's been in the in the business kind of understands those intrinsically. I think what people who are musicians um found when they went to therapy that it was difficult for a therapist who didn't have that experience to empathize you know because they would from the outside look and think but it looks great you're out playing music it's what you always wanted to do and so um i think that's kind of you know that helps in the individual therapy but that's also the kind of you know the purpose of the book and getting out to the widest industry the the idea the fundamental idea that actually this is a stressful lifestyle you know regardless of whether you think it is or not it is and it it is going to affect you in some way so the book has you know a lot of ideas of kind of look this is how it might affect you it might be physical you know you might get physical breakdowns you might be tired you might have difficulties with your throat or it might be mental or it might be relational you know that thing about if you're if you're a part of a band a lot of the things that happen on tours is you know you get breakdown of relationships and and between band members and also um also with loved ones and and so it's about really kind of creating that awareness that this is likely to happen and if we can be prepared for it we can put things in place it can make it a lot easier how do you um i guess it's an interesting wave that's happening from as we become more aware of this stuff and there's more support and, and people are supported in in looking after themselves on tour. And then I'm just thinking about how that works with our traditional ideas of um, creatives when we kind mm -hmm. of mythologize um, yeah. the story of the, the pop star and the rock star and we kind of look up to them and um, and where you see that going or what what you see happening to the trajectory yeah. of the pop star yeah well it's 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 really interesting and that's a that's a fascinating thing because you know i look back and we were quite a we were kind of um heavy drinkers i think you know we were definitely a drinking band um mm -hmm. and i think i look back and think you know a big part of um, that was, was it the idea that that's what we should be doing? Um, but a big part of it was actually stress relief. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one of the things that I think, you know, this this idea of um, 
musicians as kind of hard drinking, drug taking, you know, which is really, uh, really entwined in pop and rock music, you know, uh, the kind of everybody, you know, right back to Hank Williams, you know, Jimi Hendrix, everybody throughout, you know, there's somebody. Now, we've associated it with kind of with creativity and kind of felt, okay, maybe this is in the personality that they have to be this kind of personality. But actually, you look back and think, well, is it? There's a third variable there, which is just actually this is people's way of trying to cope with the stress of it. And actually people will turn to alcohol and to drugs and those things because it's a very stressful lifestyle. Um, so so it is, it, yeah, I mean, I don't think, it, it was always a shame to me that, you know, that the idea that musicians have to be kind of hard rocking, <laughs> drug taking womanizing people and really it's kind of you know i think maybe we've grown out of that a little bit i don't know maybe not i mean in certain musical genres it's still very important to be you know the hard rock it's still very important to be like that um so maybe that's just become part of the culture now but i think the reason you know it didn't set out like that the reason it's happened like that is that these are coping strategies you know something as basic as you know getting to sleep when you come off stage um you know and if you finish a, a, a two-hour gig at 11 o'clock at night you know the adrenaline that's been produced is not going to allow you to sleep for four or five hours so what do you do you know you're on a tour bus traveling across texas what do you do you know you drink there's nothing else to do you reach for the beer and eventually that will put you to sleep and these things become habit forming they become uh, psychological crutches um and unfortunately you know it's not just drink it can then be drugs you know you can see why you know why people would kind of reach for drugs after a gig to kind of wow i've got to pass six or seven hours on this bus how am i going to pass that time um so you know for me that's the thing that people have got to realize that okay yes this might be part of the culture this might be part of the look um but you don't necessarily have to do it yeah. i mean i think for me one of those stories that i heard is that you know apparently dean martin had um had a reputation you know as hard wink hard drinking he would go on stage with a big glass of whiskey it was apple juice, you know, it, apparently it was apple juice because it's, but, but he knew the reputation. That's what people expected to see, yeah. but he didn't necessarily want to do it. It's so fascinating because I think there's a, there's a link as well with the music press. Obviously as time has gone on, those sort of print press has kind of got, enemy doesn't have as much influence mm. as it used to. And those magazines and newspapers like Melody Maker, Q and, um mojo all of those things in the past would have you know you'd have your front cover imagery that would always um stay with you I mean I'm still with that image of you know Richie Edwards and from on the cover of Enemy or the image of Kirk Bain um and then how those stories like as fans we would read about our favorite uh musicians and read about their lives and it was so distant away from whatever we were doing. And, you know, and I'm thinking about how, as we then change our attitude to 
musicians how we have a sense of their story and I don't know if you yourself have even noticed that yourself with how fans interact with you now in comparison to how they used to interact with you in terms of putting you on a pedestal or, or talking to you differently I don't know if it's if it's changed for you um well there's a lot to unpack there I mean I think one of the things that you're saying is actually is really really true I think that thing that that undersold influence of the music papers um now what's really interesting for me is that um you know when when we were at the in 1990s that was probably the height of the music papers that was when it was really important and they were absolutely integral in shaping the culture around the time you know they were that intermediary that was that was shaping the culture um and and they created it in a specific way so as i say what i was talking about earlier that kind of type of of masculinity you know that was an invention of james brown you know a particular um you know particular journalist at the enemy who went off and formed loaded and that was his personality now the way that would seep through is that the, the, there was a narrative created between the band so our experience with with uh, the enemy melody maker is that we'd be on tour somewhere or we'd be in studio somewhere and there was an expectation that when they turned up you would perform you would get very drunk or you would do something outlandish or you would make the interview you would say something ridiculous and because the 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 message that was passed on was that unless you do that you're not going to get the big splash you're not going to get the big spread mm -hmm. and so and so many people would say, you know, I was misquoted and that isn't what I said and those kind of things. And and you would find that. So the narrative was actually shaped by the by the press. Um, what's changed now, I think, is that actually, you know, the demise of the press is actually partly due to the fact that um that artists musicians can communicate directly you know they can actually communicate directly through social media and so that has its ups and downs um but i think what it does do is um it's it's lessened that kind of us and them attitude that i think was really there you know in the 90s it was very much an us and them attitude um you you know you were seen as you're the pop stars you're well you're up on a pedestal and and we are not worthy kind of thing um which i always found really uncomfortable um i i one of the things that i've always said is that you know fame i was never any good at it and 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 thankfully the little bit i had i realized that i didn't want it because it was the asymmetry of it that i felt so difficult you know that somebody would come up to me and start to talk and you know they'd obviously read the interviews they were asking me things about me and and i'd start to ask them about them because i'm interested and they would literally say oh well, i'm not important you know and and that asymmetry was really difficult because i you know from where I am now as a therapist I like to hear about other people that's my interest mm -hmm. um I don't particularly like you know um I, I like the sort of reciprocity of the back and forth and you didn't get that it very much the attitude was an us and them mm -hmm. I think that's changed I think that what's really good is that now people uh, through Twitter through Facebook through people showing a bit more of their lives their everyday lives they're realizing oh you're just like me and and 
that's a lot nicer i think it feels i mean people need their icons and stuff i think and okay you've still got those you know huge artists who don't connect with people but i think there's a huge groundswell of artists who, who sort of get a lot more out of it actually connecting with the people now um i do yeah it's definitely changed for me yeah it's so interesting you know hearing it from your perspective like that it mm. it puts it into perspective and um the idea that as well when you talk about this connection and the reciprocity mm. and at the same time there's something of your history that people know there was there was this time when you were sort of written about in that way so you kind of have this legacy as well and now that you're out of it I wonder if there's something about having had it that is quite nice um kind of it's there but it's in the past absolutely yeah. Yeah. You're. I mean. Yeah. You're very. Um. You're very. You're very empathic. You do. <laughs> you do get it. Um. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, for for a while, it was. It was difficult to integrate that. Um. That what was. It was often. Uh. Kind of. I don't know. It, it was a bit embarrassing. It was a bit difficult to talk about. It was. But actually, you know, now it's become. It is really, really nice to have that there now um in a way in a way i think it's been easier over maybe the last five or six years that that from about 2018 um i've integrated it before it was very very separate so for a long time in fact you know i would pretty much say that 95 percent of my clients from about 2010 to 2018 had no idea what i'd done before um the band was in a very much a, a a kind of hiatus position so if you googled simon robottom it wouldn't bring anything up about the boo radleys um maybe one or two things but people wouldn't connect that so if my clients were googling me all they'd get is me as a psychologist so it never came up you know, it just it just wasn't an integrated issue. And I was quite happy with those two things being separate. Um, it was a strange thing, you know, when people would say, oh, what did you used to do? And you used to have to go, you used to have to go through that terrible thing of kind of people of saying, oh, I used to be in a band. The people, were, oh, have I heard of you? And I don't know the Boo Radleys. Oh, I haven't heard of you. And, and, and before youtube it would be kind of okay yeah no it's fine um but then i'd just say well if you go and uh, put youtube in uh put the boo radleys in and then of course people come back and go oh that wake up song i know that song <laughs> so it was always a really kind of awkward interaction um now um it's kind of it feels a lot more natural and i think you're absolutely right there's something about it being in the past being part of something that happened but feeling more comfortable and more integrated um with with um what i'm doing now yeah and i guess because you have the addition of those other people as you said like nikki from lush and mm. louise weiner as everyone's talking about it i guess you all have that sense of oh look what we survived about yeah. it or something that you can now talk about how it used to be and find yeah. community in that maybe i guess in a way you didn't at the time and I think I think the time that's passed, you know, I think we're all a lot more comfortable with ourselves now. You know, I think we probably all went through a similar journey. You know, I think we all probably throughout the 90s, you know, it was this kind of 
we want to be a big band and this kind of thing. And then the disillusionment and then the splits and then probably maybe the loss of identity, the, you know, returning to normal jobs, those kind of things. And then coming out the other side and sort of saying, yeah, having that shared um, shared experience of kind of, oh, right. Yeah, no, it was fun, wasn't it? Do you remember this? Do you remember that? But we're not reliant on it anymore. It doesn't define us anymore. I think that's the key thing. You know, we've all now got new identities, new kind of, okay, that that was a part of me and it was a fun part of me, but it's not who I am. Um, I think I think parenthood helps with that as well. Yeah. You know, I think being able to have different aspects of the self that are still very present. And it's like, you know, the musician part, the pop star part, whatever we want to call it, was a fun part. And and it's and I'm happy to recognize that. But I don't have to define myself against it anymore. There's plenty of other things. Yeah, yeah. I've heard I have I'm hearing that more and I have heard it a lot that around parenthood being quite grounding in that way um putting your focus somewhere else and mm. um, it must be an interesting thing kind of it sounds like your children are kind of adult now yeah yeah, yeah and how they relate to you um I guess knowing that of you whether whether mm. it plays a part or whether they they don't care or how how does it happen? <laughs> it's really it's really interesting. It's a that's a very good question because for a long time they didn't care. For a long time it just it wasn't on their radar. They kind of knew it and and a couple of times I'd be asked to go into the school with my guitar and sing some songs and stuff. And so it was kind of in their face then. But it's really interesting how it's changed as they've got older. Um there's been a few things. I mean, one of the, yeah, they, my eldest is 23 now uh, and uh, the other one's 21. Um, and uh, they they are very much involved in it now. They've come out on tour with us recently. They sell merch, they do stuff. And I think that really changed things. I think seeing us, so the first tour we did was about two years ago. And I think it really shocked them when they saw people coming up and saying, your music changed my life. You're so important to me. This album was so important. And I think it was kind of like they were a bit, oh, wow. But I think as they get older and sort of start learning a bit more about the past and about the 90s, um, you know, it, it's kind of, it makes a difference to them. Like my son comes up to me the other day. He must have read something or seen a photo or something. And he said, why didn't you tell me you knew Oasis? And I was like, well, you didn't ask it was like it wasn't important to you it's like you have to realize these people are like gods to us and you just casually mention oh yeah we went drinking with them this night and stuff and so it it, it changes you know it's changed and I think um you know for a long time they weren't really they weren't bothered at all but it, it it's sort of a I think they have that awareness of kind of of kind of history and culture they kind of recognize these figures and think oh god you were you were actually part of that um so it does change yeah yeah but I think you were right about the grounding thing I think that is a bit I think that is very important because you realize that actually in life that's your priority that's your role and that has been the most important thing for most of us you know most of us it's been the most important thing for the last 20 years and mm -hmm. so nothing will ever be as important as that you know the whole it, it kind of puts the whole musician band thing into perspective you know that actually it, it occupied so much of us and was so important but actually being pushed into second place and realizing it's not that important 
was is really helpful. It helps you relate to it in a in a healthier way, I think. Yeah. I guess as you're speaking there, it sounds like you really have got to that place. There's there's a real contentment. I think I listened to I, I did listen to a podcast you did some time a few weeks ago you talked about mm. the difference between feeling happy and feeling content mm. you said contentment is this kind of long-standing experience and it sounds mm. like that's where you are I don't know if yeah. I just assume but it sounds like you've got to a contentment I think so I think so yeah I mean I, I do think there is a there is a sort of um a qualitative difference between the concepts of happiness and contentment mainly being the contentment means being ha content with whatever comes along um i think happiness is always associated with wanting to get to a certain state that will bring happiness and that was always the mistake with with the ideas around pop stardom and those kind of things it was kind of this will bring happiness but actually and i suppose it's an age thing as well and an experience thing that you actually realize contentment is available to you at any point if you just accept that it doesn't have to be a certain way mm. um it, it, it whatever everything has a process to it and if you can kind of take what you can from that process of of living actually you can be content um and and i think you know it's not just it does come as part of a process of living and experience and those kind of things i don't think it's just something that you can sort of give to people okay here's how to be content but i think you can guide people you can say look if you start to view things this way it can help shape and 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 give up the idea of happiness you know give up the idea that 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 the, the new car you know the new house the job whatever it is that that's going to lead to happiness you know yeah. it, it really doesn't yeah yeah and that is that also what you kind of look at when you because you've got this other layer as well there's so many different things you do the balance psychology mm. um, that's to do with bringing I guess your workshops to the workplace is it yeah yeah, yeah. That's the idea. I haven't really focused very much on that. Um, there's been a, I've done a couple, um, but I, yeah, I run out of time for stuff. But but that is the idea. I mean, the idea with balanced psychology is that um, is that there are certain aspects of mental health that people might want um, explaining. Um, so I have done ones about um, about sort of anxiety and mental health stigma, where that might come from, those kind of things. Um, it's a, it's another arm of that kind of um of that kind of um educative thing that i really like but i also think you know what's there in my personality that i'm realizing is that actually it's not that i get easily bored it's that i like variety mm -hmm. um you know i do like to have uh, there's something in my personality that likes to have something new to look forward to um, I always like to be creating something new and to say, okay, I'm going to do that next and I'm going to do that next. Um, and I think, you know, with, with the idea around balance, I think that's what I've always had to try and do is to sort of create a stability like I've done with my practice, but also have some of that, um, uh, that variability in there, try and attend to both needs. So I kind of think we never get the balance spot on but i kind of think i'm kind of wavering around uh getting the balance right um because yeah because I, I do like creating new stuff i get excited by new stuff um yeah 
yeah I mean it comes across definitely and, and like what you said before about um the, the fact that you keep going <laughs> there's there's certainly like there's a lot of um it sounds like you have a lot of ambition but also just determination and stamina to do it um yeah which is I think it, it sorry you're gonna say something. No, no I was just gonna say I, the thing is is that I, I kind of what I find is that I enjoy it you know that's the weird thing it's 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 a bit I think the determination used to be used to be used uh to a goal you know you, that, I think that's a, a fundamental shift is that I used to be like my goal be a pop star you know be on top of the pops um then my goal was you know be a psychologist do this and, and the it, but actually that's really shifted and that's definitely shifted um, <clears throat> as always to kind of mantra with the new Boo Radley stuff is that we've said to each other, we enjoy this or we don't do it. You know, it's it's a case of we're not chasing a goal anymore. The determination, the only determination is to enjoy it, do something that you find engaging, that you find interesting. Um, and I'm very, very fortunate that I operate in an arena that it is this stuff that I find fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, where I was sort of going with that just a second ago, I was thinking about, in a way, when we think of um, the success of, uh, I guess, as we're talking about music industry, you know, the success of musicians, um, yeah. as much as as there is all of that, you know, around the press and, and the mythologizing, what does seem very apparent to me is actually there is, there is a quality to why certain individuals succeeded in the music industry, why certain individuals are lauded and and do deserve that respect. I guess I use the word respect as opposed to idolization. Like mm-hmm. um, there is a quality around what it takes to achieve or to get to um harness uh, a creativity to a certain point of making it work the level of hard work it takes but but it isn't just none of it is just luck it's not luck one thing that's become very apparent to me through all these interviews is that there's a shared commonality of of spirit of of keeping on and trying hard Mm -hmm. it seems to be this ethic underneath it around that that I find really interesting right Um, yeah <clears throat> that's good to hear i mean i think that that level of respect i think you're right because when i think about the artists who garner that kind of respect i think it is about longevity and it is about um continued creativity and that does take perseverance you know i'm thinking about you know pj harvey nick Cave, bruce springsteen mm-hmm. you know mccartney all these people who've now actually there is, you know, the, the sort of the slots on Glastonbury that a while ago people wouldn't have kind of, um, you know, it would be like, oh, why is that old fart on Glastonbury? You know, they weren't interested. <laughs> there's a there's a difference. There's a respect there now that people yeah. can respect a body of work. And I think that is about perseverance and the fact that actually, you know, these people who we respect, their aims over the period of time, their aims haven't been fame or stardom or money or those kind of things it's been creativity entertainment engagement all that and just the sheer love of music and creating and words and all those things and i think that's what people i think you know 
give that respect to is that actually that's what they respect um i think that that and i think that's fair enough absolutely yeah you could see those people and and you know and i don't they those are people in the public eye but you know i don't think um you know people have the same admiration for example you know somebody who's been a teacher for 30 years and has given their all and has been there for their pupils and has you know i think there's a, i think we have a respect for that for that engagement with something that we consider worthwhile yeah definitely yeah yeah and um, and you're in well you're still in the boot rent that's the thing it, you know it is mm. still going it's not yeah it's mm -hmm. um and you've even got a tour coming up like how yeah. how do you um combine and balance these things because by the sounds of it you've got a very busy practice three days a week and yeah, how does it work for you to balance well i'm very i'm very lucky really because i don't have to make that decision because um tim the bass player from the bradley's who is an integral part is a teacher and so he only gets certain times <laughs> off so basically we are we tour at half terms and easter oh. and, and those kind of things so the one the one next week uh, the one that starts a week on friday a week on saturday i think um is is a one week half term tour oh. so it works i'm very uh, it works very well for me um i basically take a week off which is a normal kind of with with my practice i i, I always try and take a week off every six weeks that's my kind of limit um i take a week off regardless if i've got anything planned i'll take that week off so throughout the year with the booze um uh, that week off then becomes a touring week which is to be honest is really good as well because British shows a week's our limit. Um, back in June, we did two weeks and I was absolutely exhausted at the end. It <laughs> really exhausted. And then straight back to work, you know. So it, it's kind of actually having it, having it contained for other reasons is really, really helpful because it stops the temptation of kind of saying, oh, maybe we could do a bit more or maybe we could do a bit in America or maybe we, you know, it's not, it's not possible. So it constrains what we do. So it kind of, it keeps it nice and tidy for me. Um, I think it would be really difficult if we weren't constrained like that and we were starting to get offers to say, oh, can you do this and can you do this? it would be hard for me to kind of um, keep a lid on that and kind of keep the focus on my therapeutic practice. Thankfully, it just doesn't, it's not an issue because Tim absolutely can't take the time off. You know, he's a teacher. So, um, you know, we don't take that time off. So, it, so it's good. I think I would struggle otherwise with the temptation of kind of wanting to do more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can, I can see how it can get quite, <laughs> you can stretch it out, can't you? And then rest time um yeah well especially as the, the thing of the thing that we're doing now the live stuff you know it's it's really lovely to have um a second chance at it because first time round you really realize that the the focus is one of outcome that you're constantly being like why aren't we playing a bigger a bigger place you know so and so is playing this and and you're just constantly not on the pro not on the process but now 
you know, we actually don't care how many people are there. You know, it's just a case of actually we love the process of going out and playing these songs. And it really doesn't matter what the surroundings is. We're just going to do that. And, and, and it's great. You know, that, that helps so much um, that everybody's mood is so much better. Everybody loves it for that reason. It's great. Really, really, you know, very, very lucky. Um, really glad to have that opportunity to do it again. Because I never thought I would. You know, I had no intention of ever coming back to this. Yeah. What did make you think, actually, I will go back to it? It's a really good question. Um, I, I've only been able to kind of answer that with hindsight, really. Mm -hmm. um, I think probably the children getting older. I think that might have been it. Mm -hmm. But actually what happened was was really organic. Um, literally, you know, for God, probably 10 12 years I, I'd hardly touched the guitar um I hadn't really done any music and then um I, fa I found myself um picking the guitar up um actually part of it was part of it thinking about it was my daughter would have been uh, about 15 then and she uh it was I had an absolutely beautiful moment with her because she came to me about the age of 15 and said what's all this fuss about the Beatles why does everyone go on about the Beatles so I was like well young lady so <laughs> so we um so we sat down and we watched um the um the anthology uh, oh. DVDs from start to finish and she was hooked absolutely hooked so so then she started to pick up the guitar she said oh, I want to play the guitar and she learned to play Blackbird and stuff and so I think it was that that and I brought my guitar out to sort of accompany her and then it sort of seemed to spark something I, re I wanted to play I was starting to play again and I actually said to her I said you know I think I might go out busking because I just kind of want to play I feel that need to play again um, and what actually started it was that um, a guy from um, Oxford uh, who's now a friend of mine Jules Reed, um, just dropped me an email and said I do this thing in Oxford at the Jericho Tavern where uh, Liverpool because um, he's from Liverpool Liverpool artists do a solo show do you fancy it and I'd had lots of requests like this before and I'd always said no um, and I just found myself saying yeah I'd quite like to do that um, and that was it, really. That kind of opened the floodgates. Um, I did a few more acoustic things after that. Um, Tim came to one of them, and I think that kind of made him think, OK, I'd like to do this again. And it kind of built from there. You know, that it kind of just like, oh, yeah, suddenly something just opened. And because all of us, you know, really felt no, this isn't something that we'd want to do. And then suddenly um, and I think a lot of it was to do with also the availability of time you know our children were all grown up they were away at university and suddenly we found that we had time whereas before we just wouldn't have had that yeah yeah it's a nice it, there's a nice symmetry to it mm. yeah. <laughs> and also it, it kind of brings back what you said before about play because it's like what you're mm. describing now is that you get back that sense of play but it's within a contained framework so it's yeah structured as opposed to chaotic and maybe previously it was just there was an unknowable 
aspect to it whereas you can you can choose as and when you do it now so I think you're exactly right exactly mm. right that's that's exactly what it is and that's what it feels like you know it feels when we go out you know that week of touring it feels like it's really exciting to go away and play and everybody everybody takes part in it you know even the kids and you know the wives and stuff <laughs> it's just like a big party everyone's like yay let's go on tour <laughs> um and you're right you know it being contained is very very different you know whereas before um you know it was never contained it was like endless touring years and years and and it just kind of felt chaotic and would get out of hand but this feels like right we've got a week we know how to balance it we know how to pace ourselves let's have fun it's yeah really good yeah oh fantastic <laughs> so that's coming up that's so imminently really isn't it you'll be yeah um and then uh yeah basically a whole uk tour into november yeah. as well yeah yeah I'll, i will put up all the links for that and um is there is there anything else you you wanted to mention that you wanted plugging or i don't think so i mean we haven't uh, we haven't actually got anything planned for 2024 yet to blog i mean i think this is this is pretty much the last thing uh the booze tour is the last thing we're going to do this year and then have a couple of months off which is kind of planning but no um i will definitely we'll definitely be back out next year in some form but I don't know what which form that'll take yet um we do actually need to get on with it you know it's kind of like 2024 seems like miles away and then suddenly you're into november and it's like it's six weeks away <laughs> 2024 so yeah we need to get on with planning something but no that's been very comprehensive that's kind of covered everything so thank you well, i'm glad I, I hope yeah i hope you enjoyed it i, I know i've taken mm. up quite a bit of your time there so i hope it no was. no loved it um yeah i really enjoyed it too i i really love these conversations because um i find I like piecing together like the as I talk to more people kind of really getting a, a sense for what's out there and what's being researched and what's coming up routinely and um well you're yeah. very you're very insightful I mean you're able to kind oh. of um you know kind of see through the surface and pick things from underneath that are connected and that's really that's really good it's really thank you I work a lot now with BAPAM and to help musicians so I, I find that it's interesting how the worlds overlap and over time I'm kind of mm. finding myself like weaving in between these worlds. Well, I, 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 I did actually, I bought you, I bought your book on stress. Oh, right. Because, <laughs> uh, because uh, which is brilliant, which is absolutely brilliant. Cause oh, I think, you know, for me, stress is absolutely central to a lot of what people experience. You know, I think a lot, it, it's the core of a, of where a lot of kind of uh, mental health difficulties spin off from and so I think you know it's one of those things that's absolutely central so it's great to have a book like yours that kind of really um, you know that I can recommend to people it's brilliant. Thank you oh, that's really lovely thank you that You're I welcome. really appreciate that that you bought that <laughs> I sometimes forget that I've written uh, <laughs> it's really bizarre <laughs> yeah. I think it's because I've got my therapy hat on most of the time yeah. And then and then someone will say oh, something about the book and like, oh, yes, I forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's really good. It's a really good. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic achievement. Thank you. Thank you. And are you, you so you wrote a novel. Are you writing you're writing any other books yourself? Or... Um, I, I dabble with writing. Um, I'm working on a play at the moment. Um, 
uh, that's that's a kind of I mean I kind of have these pet projects that I'll kind of fiddle with um and and sort of when I have a bit of downtime so I'll probably go back to that in November December um I, I, what I'll do with it I don't know but yeah I mean the novel um the novel was a a, a sort of a good experience and a bad experience it was kind of um you know I wrote it and I really love it I really love it as a book but I got an agent and then kind of going through that whole uh things being submitted to publishers and then being promising and then being rejected was just mm -hmm. it was awful and um and I think I decided then that I wasn't it wasn't something I wanted to go back to it felt a bit much too much too like um being in a band again and having to send out demo tapes to people yeah, and, yeah. you know yeah. and it found and actually that's that's why um, I never went into academic publishing after you know a lot of a lot of um, the people I trained with kind of went into academia with this stuff and the publishing game but I tried it and it, again it just felt like getting your demo tent sent back and saying I don't like this and I was just like, I can't do this again you know <laughs> I just I, I, I much prefer to kind of do things on my own now it's like I don't want someone to say so whether I can do something or not you know I'm just gonna do it yeah yeah that's so much it sounds so much nice yeah having permission needing permission is is not a nice no <laughs> no absolutely that it just yeah it's it's crushing you know it's it's really crushing so mm -hmm. I think I, I think I've had too much of that in my life so I'm just like no anything involves seeking someone else's permission no I'm not doing it I'm just fantastic thank you so much so i'll see you i'll probably see you tomorrow night yeah hanging around but the guest list's fine so yeah if you can't make it don't worry at all but um yeah if you can i'll say hi yeah definitely i'll come and find you good luck and uh yes thank you so thank much you. it's been really no worries nice at all <laughs> thank you so much it's been absolutely brilliant really enjoyed it perfect thank all you right. take care, take care. Bye. Bye. are on tour if you're listening to this today they've got a gig at bristol and then again tomorrow at oxford o2 academy and then again in london on the 4th of november on saturday um and it looks like that's it for now but um there's still tickets available i think uh for some of those gigs so if you're able to still get down to them um you can check them out on their website theboo radleys.com